Here's a few words with Jesse Bond of Southwest Fire Academy. We've got a couple courses coming up. Firefighter Survival and RIT is starting April 15th. It's April 15th to the 19th. We've got a pump-up starting April 8th. Uh, we've had some requests for officer development courses, so we're going to put those on the book soon. And just some exciting news. Southwest Fire Academy will be running courses in southern Ontario now. So we've partnered with Essex Fire. So we'll be uh, running some recruit classes, pump-ups, maybe some advanced forceful entry and all kinds of other stuff. So we'll have programs in a different location now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 81 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. When anyone tells you that they had the opportunity to meet or talk with someone that they admire, and perhaps many others admire as well, what seems to stand out most from the experience is the person's character, the most glowing review often being how down-to-earth they were. What this tells us is, we accept that given the person's storied history and experience, that they wouldn't have to be, perhaps they even couldn't be, that they'd have every right to feel more accomplished and of higher status than others in their area of expertise. Yet we really hope that self-importance isn't added to the list of what we know of them. We hope that above all else that they are a good human being, because it underpins every other thing that sets them apart. It's the commonness of those that are uncommon among us that elevate them to legend. Here's my time with Ray McCormick. Do you want to kick off with where you grew up and tell me a bit about your family? Sure. So I was born in Dublin, Ireland. I came to the United States at two years old. I was adopted. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and my dad was a firefighter. My mother at the time was a stay-at-home mom. Later in my life, my mom went back to work as a legal secretary in uh did that for probably over 20 years. So I w- lived in Brooklyn till I finished high school. And then we moved out to Long Island, Nassau County. Well, actually I was in college when we moved, but I just started uh, Nassau Community College and we moved out to Long Island. I got a job out there in the summer working for the New York State Park Commission, which was a nice job. I worked at Jones Beach and then and that was for the summer. So I always had employment in the summer and I had experienced the New York City Fire Department prior to going to Long Island. Like I said, my father was a firefighter. He worked not far from where we lived. He worked at Ladder 143 at the end of his career, and they would respond to the area where we lived. I believe they were the second through truck there. On occasion, the fire truck would stop in front of the firehouse. They were at Tilla. They would stop in front of the house. And I remember some of the firemen coming in. And I just remember as a kid, like these really tall guys coming in, they had their boots on and jeans and like white t-shirts. I think that's basically what I remember being nice to me and such. I did go to the firehouse on occasion, but not much. It wasn't like that. As I got older, I continued with college. I graduated. Then I ended up working at CBS television in Manhattan. So I worked there for about 
16 months, I was on the fire department list. Now, it's the other thing is, even though I really didn't want to be a firefighter, I mean, I kind of resisted that idea. It was the only civil service test I took. So even though I resisted it, I did it for my dad. He wanted me to do it. So, of course, I, I did it. His philosophy was very simple. Listen, you're going to have this in your back pocket. If you want to use it, it's there. But if you don't avail yourself of the opportunity, you won't have the opportunity. So I was young. I was probably, I forget, maybe you had to be 18 to take the exam. I took the exam. And in those days, they actually gave you the answers that night. They announced the actual answers on the test on on their New York City radio station. And there was no playing with numbers and juggling things like things happen today. I knew where I stood on the written. And then it was a matter of taking the physical exam. That gave you a combined score. And that combined score gave you a list number. Why were you resistant? What were you more inclined to want to do? I wanted to be in radio or television. Yeah, I had gone for radio and television production in college. I got a job at CBS. It didn't bring me physically closer to my ultimate goal, but it was a spot in the building. I was an employee, so opportunity could possibly come my way. It's like anything else. You get your foot in the door, maybe maybe something can happen. So I gave that about 16 months. I wasn't in the production facility in Manhattan. It was divided into two spaces. I I worked in a building. It's called Black Rock. They had CBS Records in there, and or Columbia Records, I guess it was called. They didn't really do productions in that building. The buildings on West Side, West 57th Street, was the big complex where they did television shows and probably radio production as well. So anyway... I was no closer to the television than my dream working there than you were at home. So when my number came up, I was gone with the draft, as the song says. I took it, wasn't quite sure what it was about. I had buffed a big job with my dad prior to joining. It was Fire on Pine Street, and it was written about in WNYF, which is with New York Firefighters Magazine. That's their internal magazine. And it was basically a multi-alarm fire that spread through the cock loft of all these attached frame houses. And that's what I lived in, in Brooklyn. We actually lived at the end of a row of about five frames. So anyway, I had some, could feel some companionship with that fire. But that was about it. I, I wasn't a big, my dad didn't bring me to the firehouse a lot. And it was never like pushed. It was more like, hey, here's a job that has been good to us. Just get yourself on there and you make your own decision. So obviously they were very happy that I did that. It was a very proud moment that I joined up. And then uh, the longer you stay, the more you love it. So I never had a, once I crossed the threshold, I enjoyed it. I loved it. But I will say this. When I first came on, of course, you're a probie and I worked in Midtown Manhattan at Ladder 24. That's where I was assigned. That area, if you were to just drive there in your car, you would be kind of overwhelmed by the buildings you see because it is that column of buildings that all various heights and most of them tall. I can remember riding on the fire truck and being like, I have no idea where I am. I have no idea what street this is. We came the wrong way, whatever. It was just a lot to take in. You were under the guidance of the officer and usually I was on the irons team i had the can which is the starting position in a ladder company 
I was in that role religiously for three years, every tour, basically. And then once you were, they give you like this three-year journeyman certificate. Once you had that, or depending on the staffing of the company, you didn't really move around. You got good in that one. They wanted you to get good in that core spot. And then they would gradually put you in different spots. And then eventually I drove the fire truck. I was there for 13 years. I loved it. It was a great Everybody talks about diversity in their response area, which is a wonderful thing to have. This area definitely had a lot of diversity. And it also raised me with a respect for fire because the buildings we fought fires in, it was very easy to make a fatal mistake and find yourself somewhere where you couldn't find your way out. So to be aggressively cautious or i forget the phrase they use today but it's something like having your wits about you but being aggressive as well but educated aggressive yeah don't ski over your skis you know what i mean sort of you know (laughs) you have to have a tempo and a pace for some of these places so anyway it just gave me a great respect for that we did a lot of commercial building fires obviously so you learn that teamwork and staying in touch with each other and how important that is i'll tell you a funny story so things get developed as years go on like may day i'll just say may day so obviously there's always been a little bit of a social stigma to calling a may day that's just the way it is and i can remember we had we were upstairs in a commercial building and one of our guys was downstairs searching another floor. I guess we had the responsibility to do a couple of floors. He couldn't find his way out. He radioed us and we came down and basically it was, we called his name. Hey, Paulie, we're over here. And that's basic. That was the extent of what we did for him. We were at the exit or the entrance and called for him for the sound of our voice to come. And he did. I mean, it wasn't like it wasn't the worst smoke condition in the world, but he had gotten himself lost in this maze of aisles and clothing and things like that and stock and just got turned around. But there was no official like, hey, here come all the troops. I think the boss sent like two guys downstairs and said, go get them. <laughs> that was the extent <laughs> of it. And it's just, it's just funny. Just the way it is. Did you have an academy leading up to being detailed? Oh, yeah. So the academy... I believe was about, let's see, it was either six or eight weeks. I got out just, I went in the very beginning in November and got out just before Christmas. I think we were assigned to the firehouse around Christmas time. So it was short, but we also did a field trip to the Bronx. I remember we we got an opportunity to work at a big vacant H type because there was there were tons of them that were vacant up there at the time. Vacant buildings were very common in New York City at, in 1980s. And uh, that's when I got on in uh, 1981. So we went up there and actually cut the roof, pulled ceilings. We did all that stuff that was kind of talked about in the academy and the best they could replicating it back in those days. Training has come a long way, obviously, with the use of props. Firefighters get a lot of prop work, but this was actual going out in the field and experiencing a real building. So that was great. And the class, I was the fourth class of that year, 1,200 firefighters came on, 1,200, 300 in each class. Did they ever cut anybody from the class? Did anybody ever not make it? No, I think most people, 
in those days would just drop out. I don't think it was so much that, you know, you had to be pushed out. The weeding out process still exists. There are firefighters, they'll lose maybe 10% of a class in, within a few days. It's almost expected. People just don't realize what it's about, even though you tell them. They probably have more of a prepping than we did about what the job is about, yet that's fine. There's no shame in, in saying this isn't for me. Better that than to spend your career being on edge about what you're doing. That's no way to go through any, any occupation. I was there and like I said, it was a great diverse area. We had we had a lot of different multiple dwellings. We had we would sometimes operate without guidance. Years later they would have guidance on how to deploy a ladder company in certain kinds of buildings. We would split our crew a lot of times and then they kind of moved away from that. They graduated to try and keep the functionality of a of a company together. So there was a lot of times where you worked in smaller groups with a partner and were assigned maybe to find an alternative way in or just go above or whatever it might be. Besides the diversity of the area, there was also the fleshing out of procedures. I mean, we were kind of, the fire department didn't have everything spelled out. New York City likes to have procedures for everything, which is good. I believe in that because I came up in that system and I see the benefits of it. But a lot of it was created back in those days by trial and error, seeing what worked and what didn't work. And the other factor that happened in the firehouse I was in was it was the home of the third division, which basically covered the Midtown area. And the chiefs that worked there were very well known and they had dealt with some serious high rise fires. They were sort of on the, uh, the cusp of high-rise firefighting and chiefs that went to the third division or maybe even the first division, which was downtown, lower Manhattan, they were groomed. People who worked in certain areas were being groomed for higher positions. And it was a place where you would put some of the brightest people in the job because they wanted them to have that experience of the diversity and high-rise operations because if you look at New York City, most people don't realize New York City has a tremendous amount of private homes, smaller private homes. A lot of times they're more than one story, but we have plenty of those as well. Usually they're like two and a half story, but New York City has thousands of them. And there are a lot of firefighters that don't do high rise work or even the opportunity for mid rise work is even limited. So we are a very diverse city with all our public transportation, waterways, and everything else. I remember one day I had a covering officer and I was driving him. And years later, we met again in the Bronx. I was a lieutenant and he was a chief. He recalled the day he worked in Midtown in Ladder 24. We were like a slingshot all day. We were going from the east to the east side, back to the west side, and I was driving. Now, I wasn't a regular chauffeur. I was a substitute driver. Uh, but I still loved it, and I was pretty good at it. We were just all over the place. We had a man in a machine call. We had fire calls, emergencies, and we were in that rig like all day and you know, driving down. I mean, there's nothing like driving down a four-lane street like 34th Street or 42nd Street in midtown traffic, and you get 
you can build up a little head of steam and you had to be on the wrong side of the road a lot. It was very aggressive driving to get to where you needed to go. And <laughs> I think his head was just spinning. And he basically said as much when we, we talked about it, like he, he couldn't get over that day he had. It's like, well, yeah, you got the real deal. Bit of a dark cloud that day for you. Yeah. So I'll just say in 1985, when I got married, I had worked the first three months of the year and we were really busy. We had gotten a buddy of mine who's since passed, Sal. He came to the firehouse from a quiet engine in Queens and he came on and we caught a few jobs together and he was like, man, this is my FDNY dream realized that, like I said, it was a residential area and it was a quiet area. After a year, he was able to transfer out of there after his probation was up. He made the move and he came there and we caught some work in a hotel fire. We we got a unit citation for that. We rescued a family. Pass, we had to go past the fire to get to them. He was at another job with the captain where the captain was like, oh, this doesn't look good. Let's get out of here. And they had an internal collapse soon after that. I had gone to a lot of fires in that three-month period. I, and I remember saying, wow, man, can't wait to, like, to go on vacation. <laughs> so sometimes you're on a dark cloud, as anybody knows has been in a fire. Was, that, that's uh, interesting. And usually people are like, hey, let's keep it going. We love our job. We don't want to see people suffer, but if something is going to occur, all right, just do it when I'm working. You know, I'll happily accept what it is. So I think most firefighters go to work with that feeling, which uh, is good. That's always good. You want firefighters to be in tune with their job. The other thing that I think firefighters need to concentrate maybe more on is to leave your baggage at the door. When I came on, that was always the way they would say, hey, listen, you got problems. Everybody's got problems at home. Try and leave those at the firehouse door and then come in. And that separation of, hey, listen, it's going to help your head to be clear here. And we all have to, our minds drift, obviously. People have concerns. But the idea behind the, the phrase is just to reset yourself before you come in. And I always thought that that was a practice that I did. It was something I did. We all have stresses in life, but you can't let that impact your work environment. As tough as that may be for some people, that is a good policy to start with. Now, if you need additional help, yeah, you got to find that certainly. But just for your everyday life stresses, try and leave them at the door because you have people that are depending on you here and you have the neighborhood that's depending on you as well. Or take the time off if you need it and get sorted out and then come back. New York City has a very robust counseling service that firefighters can take advantage of anytime they feel that they need to. And obviously after 9-11, that caused a lot of firefighters to seek counseling. So I would say that the stigma of doing that has been largely eradicated, I would say, probably because we had so many people do it and go through it and come out the other side better and willing to speak about it. So I would say that alone is what tends to erase the issue of seeking help. When you see others that you respect that say, hey, listen, I had a tough patch. I went through it. 
I feel better that I did. And what they do to try and encourage that is they will send retired, it's mostly retired firefighters. They will come into the firehouse and they represent the counseling group. They are not counselors. They are just there to listen and to just say, hey, brothers and sisters, this is available for you if, if you think you need it. So that outreach is good for both them to tell their story and to listen and guide others. Did you settle into the flow in the culture of the firehouse pretty quickly and easily? The culture of a probie was way different back then than probably it is now. So yeah, you you are put in a place and you are put in your place as well back in those days, which was fine. It was the role you you had to fulfill. In other words, you were first up, you were first to finish, you were last to sit. These were the guidelines that were handed down and they were sort of like the house rules, so to speak. So to be a participant at the table of your firehouse, this was the etiquette that was followed. And it had been followed by everyone that preceded you there. So nobody was asking you to do anything more than they hadn't done. And it was just a rite of passage. But I'm all for that. But it has to have balance. There has to be education as well. So I was fortunate. The firefighters I worked with knew that Proby School only covered so much. You had to be educated up at the company level, and that's where they took over. They wanted you to be a plug-in wherever you could plug in, whether it was after a year, two years, or three years. If you could grasp what we were doing, then you become a critical member of the team. When you're a probie, it's sad to say, but you're a liability in a way because you don't have the fundamentals down. We have to watch out for you. We have to take special care of you. It's not that we can't tell you what to do. We can, and we're going to direct you, but you just don't have all the pieces yet. And that's understood. That's any job. Someone takes on a new job. They don't know how to do everything that's required. So that's not a ding against a new firefighter. That's just the reality. The reality is you, you, like I said, we would drive to places. I didn't know where, what street we were on. That takes time to get familiar with the response area and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I got into the whole swing of things, so to speak. Yeah. We would have to do watches every night. So you would get a late watch. So in other words, you were, you were the only person awake in the firehouse and you would get the receipt of the alarm and turn out the companies. So there was a watch called the three by it started at three o'clock in the morning and went to six. That, those are the official hours of that. Usually it would be from like four to seven or four to nine till the end of the shift. But between seven and nine, most, most firefighters are arriving for the day tour anyway. So it's a little bit, it's not as inflexible as when you're there by yourself in their wisdom to keep you up and you know awake you would have to clean the kitchen. Now, the kitchen got cleaned after the meal, maybe at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, whatever it was. But the firefighters hung out there until later hours, and then they'd go upstairs. But that was a great way to spend a long period of time just really thoroughly giving the kitchen a cleaning. And 
the more thorough you were, the more time it took because you weren't doing anything anyway. So you might as well do a good job. So take all the chairs out, you sweep up, you mop, you, you do everything. It was always kind of uh, fun in a way because you were down there by yourself for the most part and they would see how you did. It was there. You were going to be judged on how that kitchen looked the next morning when people came in. So it was a bit of a point of pride. You did it. It was just one of the things that was done in the firehouse. Those things change over the years. When you sat at the house watch, by the time I got in, you didn't have to wear a cap or a tie, but that had been the uniform previously. And you would put your nameplate outside. So if any civilian came into the firehouse, your name was right there. That slowly went away. <laughs> the formality of the watch went down and down. We're kind of a microcosm of society too. Things just that were very stiff and formal changed to be a little bit more flexible. So it doesn't mean that the core doesn't change. It doesn't change. You're responsible for turning out the companies in a timely fashion and to give them the information they need. So that doesn't change. And you got to get ready as well and get on the apparatus. So listening for the tones to come in and assigning the company, so to speak, may seem very old to a lot of fire departments because a lot of it is automated now and new york city has the automation as well where it's announced what company is responding but we also like the duplication of effort and we also value the idea that one person's job is to do that for a period of time every day and it's a shared responsibility between the company that has it it's a good backup system in case anything comes in. They handle all the communications that come into the firehouse. If the phone rings in a firehouse, they answer it. And then it's just further dispatched to wherever it needs to go. What was your path to moving up to LT? Like I said, I loved where I was, but I also knew that I wanted to do more. I had gone to chauffeur school for two weeks and I met a fella in there, Danny, and he and I were teamed up to drive he had been a volunteer on long island so anytime we had the towel ladder he said listen i you know i drive the towel ladder at work i've been doing that and then i drive it in the volunteer house so he says you you drive it which was fine because when you got detailed the other two uh turned out by the time i drove the other two companies in our battalion they both had towel ladders so when i was detailed to drive i was driving a towel ladder so I appreciated him doing that, but he also asked me if I wanted to come up to the Bronx and work. And I said, listen, I get you guys busy and everything, and but I said, I, I really enjoy where I am. I'm not going to leave where I am. I have roots there. I don't know. I just wasn't going to leave just to go somewhere else to maybe catch some different work and maybe a little bit more work. I wasn't going to do that. So I looked at the promotional process as my option to become an officer. I had worked with a lot of great officers, so I was very inspired to, to see if I could be one as well. The commitment for studying for lieutenant, or pretty much any rank in the FDMY, is a long process. We have firefighters that study for years. And back in those days, the only way you could study was the written book. There was no computer to study on some of the shortcuts i had this uh collection of study cards it was called and it was devised by he was probably a captain or a lieutenant at the time he became a deputy chief 
and they were index cards. So they were just like an abbreviated version of what was in a particular bulletin. So what I did with those was I read those into cassette tapes. There you go. I'm going to date myself. Cassette tapes. This was early 90s. I would listen to the cassette on the way to work. So I had an hour's drive to work. I would do an hour in the car with that, and then I would do it on the way home. So that helped to reinforce the points of the bulletins, and the study cards gave me that abbreviated version to read into the tape. So I was pretty, pretty well into it. And then what happened was the test was canceled. <laughs> you know, these things happen, right? It was canceled, and then we had had a study group. That was another thing FDNY firefighters tend to do is they form a study group, and they'll attack a bulletin or multiple chapters in something, and then they'll make up questions for themselves. So that's how they did it back in the day. I was in a study group. Firefighter Al Ronaldson died during this period, and a couple of our study group members were in Rescue 3 at the time. So the study group just dissolved and the test was canceled. And about six months prior to the test, a buddy of mine said he had heard that the test was going to be coming back in six months or so. So I got back into it. He got back into it. We never reformed the official study group and it's in the other members that were part of it. He and I both passed and we both got appointed to the same both got appointed lieutenants on the same day. We had been in the same class at Proby School as well. And I'll just tell you that the lead up to the test, I was using a highlighter and things like that. I went through all the things I had to read in two weeks. I had the stuff down to a month because there was a, a system where you could do a monthly reading schedule. It was a lot. I mean, you read every day. If you didn't read, you were like, hey, I lost the day. It was bad. You couldn't deviate you would just rack yourself over that. And then I got it down to a week and I did like two weeks at a week's pace. The day before I, I read for 18 hours, <laughs> I just felt like I had to take as much time as I could. It was funny. We talked about a question, a potential question before we went inside. And sure enough, a version of that question was on the exam. So <laughs> I believe you can always pick up something just before the, the bell rings. We passed and had a good list number. I had like 250 was my list number. So I was very happy. And we had a class of 60 lieutenants. And then another thing happened while I was in there. I had made a rescue of a civilian while I was in Ladder 24. And it had come up and the New York City Daily newspaper decided that I was going to be their hero of the month. And that occurred in September and you weren't allowed to miss class, this uh, program, this first-line supervisor's training program. You weren't allowed to miss a class a day. Well, they, they let me have the day off. I, I might have gone there for a little bit in the morning, but got down to the ceremony, had the ceremony, and then all the big shot chiefs were there, and I got asked, hey, where do you want to go when you get promoted? I was like, all right. I had an idea where I wanted to go. My captain had been a fireman in ladder 28. He had been a lieutenant in ladder 30, and he was the captain of ladder 24, Jack McDonald. And I had consulted with him over where I should go. He said, you should go up to the 16th battalion up in Harlem. That would be a great place if I could get it. 
And sure enough, that's what, that's what I told these chiefs that, uh, that's where I wanted to go. Sure enough, I was the only one out of 60 to go to the 16th battalion. So it's like anything else, right time, right place. Now that didn't mean that I would get an assignment in that battalion. All it really meant was that they were my home base. It was the battalion of record where I was assigned. And I'd get my check there. That was another thing. Checks, right? People actually picked up their checks. That was a great honor to be there. And I got assigned an evaluator. One of the four battalion chiefs there was my evaluator. And I would have the opportunity to work there like other covering officers because you do cover for a long period of time. And then hopefully get a spot, wherever that might be. So it was the fifth division at the time. So Manhattan had three divisions, the first Lower Manhattan, the third Midtown Manhattan, basically, and the fifth division was Harlem and all the way up to the top of Manhattan, Harlem, Washington Heights, and that area. And then it became the sixth division. The 16th Battalion went into the sixth division, which was the South Bronx with an extension into Manhattan. And the 16th was that extension. So the South Bronx, the sixth division was a great division as well in fact a lot of back in the day what people tended to do was they would get promoted out of the fifth go to the sixth and then go back to the fifth on another promotion so that's kind of how it went and the the sixth division is what it is currently the 16th is still there in the sixth division and that's how it remains so i spent a lot of time in the bronx because we had six companies in the 16th three double houses in fact Every house in the 6th Division is a double house, meaning they have an engine and a ladder. So every house is very similar. In other words, they go out together to run instead of close, or they separate depending on the response area. No single engines in the 6th Division. Everything's double houses. So you get familiar with that way. I was brought up in that way. Every Not every firehouse I ever worked in was that way. Obviously, you work in single engines and single ladders as well, but that was the most common. And the fact that the 16th had a chief where I eventually got a spot. So it was a very something I was very familiar with. But I did work in the South Bronx for quite a while. I got assigned. All right, so let me tell you a little story about a hiccup I experienced. I was probably going to go to 69 on the next vacation cycle for an extended period. But as it turned out, there was another lieutenant that had covered a longer period of time than I did, and he got the nod instead of me. So I, I was all set to go there. I was like, oh, yeah, all right, I'll be going there on Monday. It's great. I got a phone call on Saturday. Hey, uh, Ray, we're going to have to give you the consolation prize. <laughs> so they said, okay, listen, you're going to go to ladder 31 in the Bronx. For about a month. Now that's longer than an average vacation. So I was like, all right, you know, what am I going to do? This is what it is. And that firehouse is the companion to Engine Company 82, where the famous book was written, Report from Engine Company 82. And I'm not sure if I had worked there prior or not, but I went there. I ended up being there for six months and I loved that place. The firefighters that worked there, they were great. They were different from Manhattan firefighters in a little bit of ways, but they were very much into the job and it was just a great, great thing. I had been in a ladder company, so spending six months as the boss of a ladder company was, was very nice. 
So I was there for six months and I really enjoyed it. And I always enjoyed going back there because even towards the end of my career, there was still a couple of guys who were still working there because New York City has a lot of senior firefighters, firefighters that stay in their company the whole period of time they're on. And it's just a great asset. It was always nice to go back there. All right. So in the interim of that happening, I had worked before that. Oh, I had gotten asked to go to 69 before that. All right, I'm kind of mixing this up a little bit here. So I had been asked to work at 69. But while I'm at 31, I'm asked to come to 31. Put in for it. Not get it, but put in. There was a senior boss that had also put in. I said, there's no way. First of all, I put a contract in. I said I would go to 69. I was asked. I'm not turning my back on that offer. As much as I loved that place, I said, listen, I have to honor my obligations. I appreciate that. It's great to be thought of in that way that you would consider having me. That's great. But anyway, so sure enough, I went to 69. Patty Brown, the famous lieutenant of the double rope rescue I was involved in, was the captain of 69 Engine. And he had approached me about coming to 69. And I was like, of course, I would, I would love to go there. I mean, many times when I went to get my check, they were out of fire. It was just, it was crazy. What was your approach and view to promoting further than that? Well, I had taken the captain's exam, but under the conditions that were happening at the time, there was the <laughs> ominous threat of having to go to Brooklyn and work at headquarters for six months and living far away. <laughs> I didn't dig that idea. And I kind of really just liked where I was. I took the exam. I passed, in a sense, my grade was over 70, but it turned out they were only looking for 400 people. <laughs> I know that's like crazy to most people. Uh, they were looking for a list of 400, and I didn't make that cut. I was over that. So that kind of changed the trajectory of my career. I studied, I could have studied a little bit harder, but obviously, but you know, I did okay. But that looming threat of going to Brooklyn, which ended up not being true, kind of like, I was like, eh, the work environment where I was in engine 69 was pleasant on a lot of, a lot of levels. It was, I worked with some great senior firefighters that kind of helped show me the way I was blessed with a lot of young firefighters that needed to be trained up. And I was all about that. I loved that. So that and the fact that we did go to fires, that the chiefs, everybody kind of got along. There was a lot of camaraderie within the battalion. I just felt like this was a great place. Nah, I still took the next exam that came up. But that was after, that was in 2002. And I don't know. I just didn't like the fact that I would have had a study after 9-11 and and I took the exam, but my heart wasn't into it. Just was like, you know what? I kind of like where I am. I finally took the overtime instead of the test one year because <laughs> that was indefinite. And I was just happy. I was like, you know what? I'm a lieutenant. I'm a lieutenant for life. I'm perfectly happy with that. We have a lot of lieutenants and captains that stay in their rank for the majority of their time as well. So you become sort of like a solid foundation for a lot of things for chiefs they look to you at, for your experience on the fire floor they give you latitude because they know you produce they know that you have a great track record 
you're not an unknown, you're a known. So to have a great reputation is wonderful. And I was never trying to chase the dream of being like super high up. We, we have people that want that. Certainly I kind of took the long road. I liked being the confident confidant of firefighters being the first one they'd come to with a, with an issue as a higher up. And you are that bridge between the rank and file and uh, the chief officers. So it's a unique role and anyone that's done it for a while should find joy in it because you get to impact young firefighters when they come in and set them on a trajectory, hopefully that's beneficial to their career. I just recently ran into two firefighters that I had worked with. One was in the ladder company. The other one was in the engine with me and went to a lot of fires together with him and the other fellow as well. But one of them was directly under me for a while to this day. And they're, they're, they're in the rescue company. They talk fondly of those memories of us going into the buildings and drilling and, and basically having caught Blanche as to trying something. And I always encouraged new things. I had no problem with that. And they knew it was a great time. And the other thing is it led them to where they are now. They both enjoyed it. Their skill sets are top notch. And we had a lot of firefighters like that. And they still do to this day. And that's because the firehouse is sort of like a, it can be a training firehouse. You have teaching hospitals. Well, there's teaching firehouses as well. The firehouse, it's known as the Harlem Hilton, is well known throughout the fire department. And I know for a fact that the higher-ups know that it is one of the elite firehouses in the FDNY. And when you get an opportunity to work in a place like that, you have to take advantage of it and put your best foot forward as much as you can. Did you take a formal position as an instructor at any point? And how did that happen? I taught at the fire academy the last couple of years in my career. I had gotten injured, so I was light duty. I decided that I wanted to work at the fire academy. So <laughs> this is, again, right place, right time. I'm at a, at a uh, get-together. They're talking fire tactics at a place called Friends of Firefighters. They're an organization, they're a charitable organization that holds small talks with firefighters and officers about certain things, or they'll have a book reading, but they also do counseling services and wellness for firefighters. And they have an old firehouse in Brooklyn. That's where they're located. So one night I decided to go there and it was a long drive for me, but I, I got there and I listened to these fire officers talk about different fires they had had. And it was very interesting. And one of the people in the audience was the former chief of the fire academy, who I had known since I was a fireman in ladder 24. And we talked and I told him about the fact that I was looking to go to the academy. Well, he was always very diligent on sending emails and things like that. He was always like on top of things. He sent an email that night or early that morning to the chief who's in charge of the fire academy that I was interested in going there. And it's a good thing I called. <laughs> I called the next day, thank goodness, because I 
it was just a good thing that I followed up and called. And we had known each other as well. And he was like, oh, delighted to have you here. You know, it'd be great. Yeah, you know, come as soon as you can. I did. And I got put in tactical training, which is a department within the academy where we teach field units. We drill with field units. So a company would come out several times a day. They'd have different companies come out and we would hold drills for them on whatever the topic was that we were going to do. And I really liked that. I tried to include standpipe operations into that and and they let me. Standpipes was something that was near and dear to me. We would go over how to do standpipe operations and, you know, you'd have them for like, I don't know, an hour or so, whatever it was. And then they'd go back to the firehouse. We also did stretching and falling exercises. We did all kinds of different stuff. So I kept a book because they would fill out a sheet and hand it in. But I kept a separate log book of when I was working, what I taught that engine company and everything. And then other officers could use it as well. This way we kept track of what was going on there. So it was great. I did that for a while. And then I left there and I went to a support unit called the RAC unit, which was the rehabilitation and care unit. Basically, we supplied a job with Kool-Aid, <laughs> so to speak. There's two firefighters in each borough and they have a, a small truck and they'll go out to a, a fire where our Firefighters need some rehabilitation. In other words, they'll pass around drinks, cold towels. They have tents. It's gotten more robust over the years, but it's good because it's something for the firefighters to gather at and take a break, cool off a little bit. And maybe I know at some bigger fires, they get medically checked out a little bit. So it's all part of like how things are progressing. So anyway, I did that. I did the administrative work for that for several months. And then I ran into Frank Lieb, who was uh, working as a district deputy chief in the first division on occasion. So he and I would hang out and talk shop uh, after dinner. And finally, he just said to me, hey, listen, we got a project going on at the academy. I'd like you to be involved in it. So I was like, oh, yeah, all right. So I did that. But prior to that, I had approached him about the fact that I felt our engine company book needed to be redone. And we were trying to figure out how to redo it and everything. And he finally just said to me, well, why don't you, if you want to do it, do it. And I said, okay, I have just one or two little things. I said, I want to be in charge of the group and I get to pick the people in the group. And he was like, yeah, that's not a problem. So that project lasted over two years. We probably cut about 200 and some odd pages out of the books because there was a lot of redundancy and things like that. We also reincorporated some of the ideas into different things and eliminated the structure they were currently under. And one of the fellas in the group came up with the idea. He said, why don't we just rewrite the book? Like, don't try and just fix it and reorganize. Let's just take a new approach to it and rewrite the book. And when he said that, a light bulb went off and I was like, yeah, you're right. Let's just do this from not from scratch we we had plenty of information around us but to just reorganize it in a different way and even though it's still a manual so you have chapter 1.1.1 and it goes on it's very readable we made a very readable manual and obviously very proud of it and i was happy for the opportunity to do that so i was doing that while i was working at the fire academy and working at the rack unit trying to work on that 
towards the end, I went back and did the special project he was starting was called Back to Basics. They had had this before, but so anyway, Back to Basics and got the stamp pipe thing into that as well. And then COVID hit. So I'd done it for, I don't know how many months, six months, whatever. And we had probably 30 to 40% of the job trained in Back to Basics, the things we had covered. And then COVID hit and it was like, the academy shut down and I was just like, okay, it's time for me to retire. <laughs> so I put in to retire and a month later I was retired. Before I left, those two years and change that I had were fantastic. I did a lot of stuff that I hoped to get done and it did come true. I did a job-wide survey of all the engine companies to give us a snapshot of what they had on their apparatus and stuff. And it was great. One of the guys was great at statistics and he was able to break it down by borough, by division, by battalion. I mean, anything I wanted, he could crunch the numbers on. That was a great thing as well. So a lot of people go out of the job, unfortunately, unhappy. I was just the opposite. My last two years, I wasn't in the firehouse, but they were super productive and you can assist your job in a lot of ways. You really can. It's not just on the fire truck. So I was very happy. What led into you writing articles like Urban Firefighter Magazine? How did that all start? Writing articles started when I was a fireman in Ladder 24. Chief Vincent Dunn, famous author, worked in my firehouse. And I always liked writing. I mean, I didn't have any published works to speak of, but I always enjoyed it in high school and college. So I said, you know what? I'm going to tackle forcible entry, which is, of course, a, a subject three feet wide. So I tackled a bit of it, and I showed it to him, and he said, hey, you have an article right here. He was right, and I understood what he was doing. Like, you don't try and cover a whole topic. You take a slice of it, and you work on the slice. You make the slice good. I did. And then I had to, I made it a meeting with Bill Manning, who was the editor of fire engineering at the time in New Jersey. And I went there with the typed up article. He liked it. And he said, this'll be, we're going to start a new column called the truck company column. And I was the first author of that column. And I was like, wow, this is great. I did another one. It might've been the second article as well. And that kind of got me started. I built a relationship with Fire Engineering Magazine under him. I just loved writing, and it was kind of wide open. And back in those days, everybody waited for the magazine in their mailbox. This was, let's see, early 90s, I guess I started writing. So I had, I don't know, I'm going to say at least 10 years on the job. I'm not exactly sure. I'd have to look. But I had some time on the job. So it went very well. I was very happy with what had happened. And pretty much, I only had one rejection, and I'll, I'll talk about that. But everything was accepted. You know, they edit the pieces. That's fine. Although one time they edited a thing, and it was numerical. I had like 21 ways. 21 is a famous number, right? And the editor switched it to 22 without my knowledge. I wasn't happy about that, but I got over it. But one time, I wrote a piece, and... It was called Fighting Fire from the Unburned Side. And Bobby sent it back. Bobby Halton is now the editor. Bobby Halton sends it back to me with the, with the reviewer's remarks saying, no, 
This isn't going to work. And I wrote back to him. I said, Bobby, the reviewer doesn't understand what I'm talking about. And I guess he gave it a better look over and uh, it got published the way it was originally written. So you have to fight sometimes for your own ideas. That was great because it showed that I cared enough about what I had written. I don't know what happened at the other end of that conversation, of course, but I was proven right, which was nice. And I knew like this was a little bit, it was sort of like an opinion piece. It wasn't, I don't remember what heading it was under, but, and then what happens is blogs come into, uh, which is almost all opinion. They were another great opportunity to write. I did a lot of uh, blogs. So let's get into urban now. So I ended up partnering with Eric Roden. He and I partnered to create Urban Firefighter Magazine. Eric had a blog page called The House Watch. And he wrote it without people knowing who it was. And that was common practice. Even in Fire Service Magazine, there were articles that no author was named. He had had good success with that. And we were both frustrated with where fire magazines were going. So we were like, hey, what if we did a magazine that's sort of like engine truck and a little bit of something on the side? Because fire magazines tend to be a lot of on the side and not engine and ladder and chief, which to me is the fundamentals. And you always have to have fundamentals. So anyway, we worked on it in secret for a long time. We put money behind it, created a website. We hired a uh, an illustrator. We hired someone to proofread. So we had all of that set up and we had the concept and we came up with the name and the name Urban Firefighter Magazine and a catchy logo. And then I was teaching down in Florida where I'm going this week at the Orlando Fire Conference, and I get a phone call from Eric saying, they know about us. What are you talking about? They know about us. They know about the magazine. It was somehow, somebody saw it somewhere and leaked it to someone. I don't know how it happened. It wasn't us. So Fire Engineering calls that day. So Bobby and another gentleman are on the phone, and they're like, they called Eric and they were like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> and Eric, I don't think, had written for the magazine. I, I don't know if he had. Maybe he did once or something like that. But anyway, I had written for them for quite a while. So Urban comes out. They get behind us. They probably were not happy, but they did get behind us and they supported us in allowing us to create this thing with their help. Then they wanted to purchase the magazine. So that was a tough decision, obviously, but we decided to do it. And they bought it under their ownership. They put out one additional issue, the eighth issue, and then they didn't do any more. It went to bed. So we had, like I say to people, we had eight great albums and then the <laughs> band broke up. So with any business, it takes about three years to really get going. Maybe some things get going faster than that, but in the publishing world, that seems to be about right to develop a following. So we achieved cult status, so to speak, 
it was a great magazine, but you can't do something without advertising. There was never a lot of advertising in there, whether that was by accident or by design. I don't know. But you need oil to run the engine, and the oil is advertising for that. So we accomplished a lot. So in 2009, I gave my speech. And then in 2010, I was back on the FDIC stage with Eric. <laughs> we had gone rogue and created this magazine, yet we were on stage with them saying, hey, listen, we're going to partner with these guys. So it was kind of interesting. Have you always been open to progression, even with mediums, right? The blog and then getting into video and YouTube with brass tacks and hard facts and now with social media, have you always just seen it as a, a new way to be prolific with information? I guess it probably comes from my love of television and radio because in the FDNY, I'll just go, let me divert a little bit. In the FDNY, they had some television stuff that they did years ago and then it kind of died out. And I always wanted to do like television production. And just before I was getting out or they really ramped up television production, video production. And I had been in a few videos and uh, they ended up simplifying how to do it. They always had the big camera and everything. I'm like, just get some phones. They did. They ended up doing it basically that way. And it's fairly robust now. So I missed that there. But I'll give you the story about how Training Minutes started. Again, Eric and I were at the forefront of this. Eric was visiting me and we were at the firehouse and we went out for a drill. And Eric used his phone and taped part of the drills. And we had a meeting with fire engineering about something. And I had told them that they needed videos. One of the people that worked there said, go ahead, make one for us or whatever. My buddy, Jim Smith and I tried to make some videos and I didn't know how to edit the camera I had. I had a camera, but I didn't know how to work with it. And every time we did something wrong, we'd have to do it again. And I just realized this is not going anywhere. This is not good. So anyway, the video we he had shot was great. And we showed it to them. And said, basically, that's what you need. Real firefighters doing real things, making it short. No, no, no. That's how training minutes started. That's how it happened. We brought that to them. And we brought the digital magazine to them as well. And how fantastic a digital magazine can be. And we were frictionless. Urban was frictionless. You didn't have to give us your email. You didn't have to give us anything. It was available on the web 24-7 worldwide. You couldn't ask for anything easier. I've been fortunate enough to be in a few disruptive things. And then Brass Tax was another video training avenue that worked out very well as well. To this day, I... I see the value in video, obviously, and social media um, on all the different platforms for the most part. You build up your audience little by little, and I've always tried to just give like snippets of either knowledge or video or photographs or just, just something that a firefighter can use if they want. It's there. With Twitter, I used to, all my tweets that I would do, like line boss leadership and I forget what, uh, what the other category was, but when Twitter was 144 characters, all my tweets under those titles were at 144, no less. Were, <laughs> it was sort of like a writing challenge for me. Right. Then they, they got rid of that rule. So, but uh, 
it's fun to be on the different platforms and and to try and figure out how to get engagement by people. I had a video on TikTok that did eight and a half million views. Don't ask me why. I don't know. It's just a firefighter using a nozzle in a in a hallway for some reason. And I was <laughs> I was at the beach in Jersey and it was going up like a hundred thousand an hour. I couldn't I have no idea why. You couldn't plan that, of course. And how about your view on challenging the way things are done, but not changing things and progressing forward just for the sake because something is new, what to keep, what to push forward with? I'm thinking here with the UL research, getting involved with that, and then maybe even leading into the hen now. It's just such a unique journey through your career from the old school, quote unquote, right, to where we are now. And your, your ability to see everything sort of with a, this broad perspective and be open to everything and sort of keeping what works and moving things forward. Talk to me about that. Well, I don't want anybody to think that I didn't have growing pains. I experienced growing pains as well. I think if you don't have an epiphany in the fire service with either new technology or different methodology, then you're kind of just floating along, so to speak. I mean, I have things that I really believe in and love. And look, I came up in a school of interior fire attack. And most of the buildings I worked in, there wasn't much opportunity for anything else but interior fire attack. So I grew to love it. And one of the things that happened with UL was I got involved in their interior exterior fire attack study. And that was the one I was that was perfect. That was right up my alley. I, I wanted to be part of that panel. And I was, I got on the panel. Our first meeting, which was two days in Northbrook, Illinois, got a little contentious at times. Steve Kerber addressed us. He was there. I remember him explaining like flow pads and stuff like that. Cause there was probably not a gang of four, but maybe a gang of six that were hard hitting, interior loving, same brain firefighters, if you will, and well-experienced too. Effective and successful. Yeah, they were. They were. And they're, and they're all well-known to the fire service even to this day. They support the fire service in education and writings. They're not just flash in the pan guys. They've been around for a while. So anyway, we debated a lot of things. And anyway, so after the two days, we came out with a great recipe for what we were going to do. And they do allow guidance by the panel. That's what you're there for. So there were two things I wanted in the panel. I wanted a long hallway. In the previous tests, they had had a very short hallway that led to the three bedrooms. So it wasn't really much of a, a corridor. So I felt we needed that hallway. And you could harken back to the expression of, hey, have you ever crawled down a hallway before? Well, that just doesn't come out of thin air. You're in the path of the energy flow. You really are. And we had done that. I'd done that basically my whole career. While I was there as a representative of the FDNY, no one had asked me to push this forward, but I felt like it was something I wanted to see brought up. So the idea was that the layout sort of replicated the upper floors of a house like a single family, but a two-story with a long hallway and bedrooms off of that. So check, we got that. I got that. And then flow and move was highly debated as a tactic. A lot of firefighters hadn't done it. 
a lot of firefighters didn't see the need for it. And anyway, I pushed forward with others and we got that technique in there. And then the point of all that was in the back of my mind, I wanted to see if the stuff that the biggest fire department in the country was the right stuff. I always thought it was, but I wanted some science to back it up. Well, sure enough. So I have my butt hanging out on this one, but that's okay because I get it. They're going to use facts and figures. They're going to use numbers and they're going to have measurements and everything else. So turned out that the long hallway served us very well. Flow and move was seen as a wonderful technique. And I felt totally vindicated in what I had asked for. And not only vindicated, I also felt that those issues were very important to get out. And the fire service is better because of it. I'm going to just tell you, if I go to a conference anywhere and they have a hands-on component, a lot of the instructors are doing flow and move as a technique to build up skill sets. And you're welcome. <laughs> no, we're very grateful. I kid around with that. But if it had been shut down, if the flow and move had not been allowed to be studied, we would have cheated ourselves and, and the greater fire service in general of that technique. And when you're doing research, I know there are boundaries, but this turned out to be one of the techniques that they could fit in within the survey, within the testing. So it worked out very well. It gives you a lot of education. And then the next study they were going to do was the coordinated fire attack, where they were going to bring in some ventilation as well as fire attack. So myself and three others were grandfathered into that group. Now, I participated a lot in the previous study. And I did somewhat in the second one, but I also believe that the panel members of the second study were really ultimately responsible for how it turned out. I was there as an advisor, could help with anything, had an opinion, but I never wanted to try and overshadow the members of that group. And I reserved myself that way. I, I, that's how I carried myself in that. That's, that's how I saw it. But the first one, <laughs> I remember, I think it was like the last day you could bring in ideas. I was like going crazy all day, just typing up and, and sending stuff in. And, and they, Robbins of Otec was the lead author of the first one. And Robbins saw the value in some of the stuff I did. And it's in the report. There are things people quote. And I said, that definition, I created that. One of them is knockback. I created the definition for knockback. And it was important because we were getting what you would call a knockback from transitional fire attack. Basically, the fire would rebound and in a, a lot of times. So anyway, that has a lot to do with how the water maps and all of that, of course. So water mapping was a great component of that study, the air entrainment, and then the actual fire attack. So the three components of that study were just fantastic. And then coordinated fire attack, which we graduated to real buildings. There was a concern in the first group that, the testing models were great, but they wanted real houses. So they got them. And I will say one thing about UL, they will burn. They're going to let that fire burn. They're not worried about like, hey, it might get in the attic. They don't get concerned about that. They want that thing to burn to a certain temperature and get it where, they, where it's at, like what they call a steady state. And then they call for the action to commence. So people say, well, they're not real. Oh, it's real. Believe me, it's very real. And they've done a great job with a lot of what they're doing. I'm hoping in the future that they expand 
on some of the things they started on, especially the commercials, commercial fire attack, that kind of dovetails into what I'm into now with this new nozzle. I got involved with this new nozzle company called HEN. It stands for High Efficiency Nozzle. So I was at a trade show and I came around the corner and Eric Gita, who's works for the company and was like the first employee, I guess, I recognized him. He was a captain out in Sacramento and he and I taught together and everything. And I was like, hey, what are you doing? So he shows me this thing. It's a plastic prototype at this point. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I says, I took a round tip years ago, probably about 12 years before he and I reunited. It's probably 15 now. And I crushed it into an oval and it creates like a flat stream. I was like, you got to be kidding. And sure enough, another friend of mine comes around the corner. He says, I have the picture of that on my phone from like 2009. I said, all right, let me see. So he said, and I'm like, I was fascinated. I really was fascinated. I knew Eric was a stand-up guy and I go home. Nothing really happens. And then probably about six or seven months later, Dennis Laguerre has come on as well to this company. And he and I talk quite frequently. I was like, yeah, you know what? I was fascinated with the fact that somebody had taken this idea and turned it into a nozzle. I was like, wow, this is cool. So I had some previous idea about potential effectiveness. And then once I ended up seeing the product and everything and getting involved, I was very happy I did because it got me to further evaluate fire streams. I don't look at fire streams like I did before this and with good reason. I think, although I haven't written on it to put it anywhere necessarily, but I've done a lot of writing about how we always thought we had the best thing and that maybe it couldn't be approved upon, but there's something better, <laughs> something better. And you know, people say, well, I'm a smoothbore guy. I'm like, yeah, so was I. I was in the FDNY. That's all they used for the most part was smoothbore nozzles. So you're not coming at this any different than me, brother. It's the same thing. And UL has kind of put the kibosh on fog nozzles for interior fire attack because of the fact that even if the window is open, you can overpressurize a room because of the amount of air it entrains. So we'll go back to the unburned side. Firefighters would come in behind the fire. Let's say the fire's in the front room. They'd come in the back and push all of that stuff out the front window if they could. And that was back in the day. We're not doing things like that anymore. We're not sneaking up on fires. We're hitting them directly now. But you could see where some of this came about. So it's interesting. It's like this is the first major difference in an attack stream in probably 75 years at least you know the fire service is a skeptical partner they are <laughs> but that's okay i get it i get that people don't necessarily want to be first but i wouldn't have gotten involved if i didn't believe it and that's it's as simple as that and i'm not and nobody's trying to sell me anything i can see pretty clearly for myself what's going on so don't worry about me. I think this is going to be a great thing for the fire service. I really do. So what's the conference circuit look like for you for the next little bit? I'm going to be leaving on a trip, <laughs> which is uh, going to encompass several conferences, which is nice, but usually there's a break in between. I do a lot of teaching at fire conferences and usually there's a class component and then we end up doing like a hands-on component as well. So I still get involved with that. I also do individual days 
where I might speak for half a day at a conference or do an individual session on my own somewhere. So between that and doing other things, I keep pretty busy. And I also want to have vacation time because I am retired, so to speak. <laughs> so <laughs> You are, but you aren't, right? Well, this year I said, I'm going to map out the vacation times and then work the other stuff around it because there's places I want to go and see. And uh, I do love traveling. So when you do travel for a conference, unfortunately, you don't really get to see too much. Usually it's kind of like in and out. There's a lot of great places in this country that you can visit. What do you like to do when you quote unquote escape from the fire service briefly? I like to uh, basically keep up my routine which is basically I like to read and I like to study different things like architecture and I like music and things like that. So that kind of keeps me busy. Are you optimistic about the fire service? Oh yeah, very much so. Very much so. Uh, I think today's firefighters are asked to do a lot. When I came on, we didn't have EMS runs. The engine in the house was engine one. They didn't have EMS runs. Today, they do over 3,000 EMS runs. The landscape has changed. I, I can't believe there's that many people in need. I don't really buy into that, but I know the system is abused for certain. Hopefully, we'll get that under control at some point, but the firefighters today are facing a fire that is very dramatic, quick moving, high heat release rates. I use a very simple barometer to look. Just look at how dirty the helmet front pieces are. You could look at firefighters who were back in the day, back in the glory days of fire departments, and their front pieces are not stained like they are today. That stuff is like tar coming at you. So the need for decon has obviously improved. It needs to improve. Firefighter health, of course, is very important. And that SCBA that you have on your back is is your retirement package. You want to use that as much as you can, certainly. And nobody's expecting you to do any more than that. Fire departments are not demanding you work without protection or stuff like that. So you can still do everything you want to do. You can still do everything you want to do. I think many times firefighters take their face pieces off because they're uncomfortable. They haven't learned to be comfortable with that on their face. You can't do that when you're scuba diving, by the way. <laughs> you know, I used to scuba dive. You can't do that when you're scuba diving. Are there things you're looking forward to writing about? There's definitely things I want to write about. I'm currently in the process of doing some writing. <laughs> can you drop any little hints, teasers of what we can expect? General topics? People like the uh, Book of Roy. So maybe that'll be something. I have a lot of material out there that I could even just collate and put together, kind of centralize it a little bit. So I'm working on it. My biggest thing is just knuckling down. Believe it or not, I'm quite the procrastinator. <laughs> <laughs> as much as I That's may have believe. done a few, I've done some stuff here and there. I, if I ever really put my nose to the grindstone, forget it. <laughs> but I'm happy with what I, the way I, I do things anyway. I have to be in the mood, so to speak. I have a select time when I write and I try and stick with that. And that's the way it is. And being on the road is tough too, because your time is not your own. 
you have obligations to, when you're at a conference, to be part of that conference. You don't just finish your set and tuck yourself away. So usually when I'm away, I don't really do much posting or anything else because I'm at this other event. Some guys do it, but that that's just not the way I do things. So You're present. You're there now, right? Yeah, I try to be. Well, I know you were packing before we talked. You're a busy guy. I really appreciate you talking with me today. It was like really great pleasure and privilege. It means a lot to me. It's fun to be on. I love sharing my story. I hope that people like it. I think that every firefighter has a story. And I've been blessed with a little fame or whatever you might want to call it. And I've been able to hit a lot of parts of the fire service from writing to videos to presentations and classes. And what we've seen today is we see firefighters from departments, small and wide, trying to follow and get into where they want to go, which is teaching and spreading the word. So we have so many more people that are into it today than ever before. And the marketplace can handle it. It's not like we can't handle it. We can handle it because we need local people to inspire people as well. These conferences that I go to, a lot of them are, are small conferences, but that's okay because they're serving a need. Well, we're grateful for your input and your energy and your time. I'm sure I speak for everybody and we hope you don't stop. Keep going because uh, we appreciate you greatly. Well, thank you. And I, I do, I will have something more concrete to say on that last topic about writing. <laughs> I don't want to say too much just yet, though. Awesome. Well, maybe we can chat again when that happens. All right, cool. Thank you so much, Ray. Thanks, brother. Take care, everyone. <laughs>